Superpowers on the Superpower Up podcast, the show that lifts the voice of love from orgasms to superpowers and everything in between. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sex, Love, and Superpowers podcast show. I am your host, Tatiana Berende, and today my guest is Mark Whitwell, and we're going to be talking about God and sex. So this is going to be a good conversation. I can feel it. I feel it in my bones. Let me tell you a little bit about Mark before we dive in. Mark Whitwell is the founder of the Heart of Yoga Foundation, a nonprofit committed to yoga education around the world. Mark has taught yoga for many decades throughout the U.S., Europe, Asia, and Oceania, adapting the principles of the great tradition to the needs of people from many cultures and countries. He's interested in developing an authentic yoga practice for the individual based on the teachings of Tirumalai Krishnamacharya, the teacher of the teachers, and his son TKV Desikachar. After first meeting these two great teachers in 1973, Mark realized the importance of their scholarship and committed his life to furthering the communication that there is a right yoga for every person, no matter who the person is. His teachings clarify the profound relevance of ancient wisdom to modern times and aim to deconstruct disempowering hierarchies and help people to stop looking, start living. Mark was the editor of and contributor to TKV Desi Kachar's book, The Heart of Yoga, Developing a Personal Practice, and is the author of Yoga of the Heart, The Promise of Love, Sex, and Intimacy, God and Sex, Now We Get Both, and the Hridaya Yoga Sutra. So welcome to the show, Mark. Beautiful. Thank you for a very detailed introduction. I appreciate that. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. Yeah. Everything, is, everything, everything is there. Yeah. Mm. Um, so we are going to be talking about God and sex today. And this is a very broad topic, but there's also a very specific angle that we're going to be approaching it from. Um, but before we dive in, we are going to take a quick break. And before we do, will you just share with our listeners what your superpowers are? I love that. I love that question, and thank you for asking. So my superpower is that I am alive on Earth. That's my superpower. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, because the power of this cosmos brought me into existence through my beautiful uh, mother and father and created one cell, and then it a whole spine grew and a whole head. And here I am, folks, power of the cosmos. And I would just like to point out that everybody is that power, that beauty, the beauty and the intrinsic harmony that is life, how, how the cosmos is functioning. And we are all that. Mm -hmm. That's the bottom line. So that's my superpower. <laughs> I'm alive. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and so is everybody else. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so I really want to get to this conversation, So, which means we got to get to this break. Uh, and will you just tell everyone where they can go to find out more about you and your work before we break? Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, the website is Heart of Yoga. Heart, my H-E-A-R-T, heartofyoga.com. And there is our immersion online personal yoga course and our, all kinds of things are there. The books are there and so on and so forth. Beautiful. Thank you so much. So we are talking with Mark Whitwell today about God and sex. Stay tuned. 
Hello, everyone. This is Tonya Don Reckla, Executive Director of Superpower Experts. And we want to thank each of you for making Superpower Up the number one podcast network for personal development and spiritual growth. Because people like you have the courage to say that mindfulness, healthy living, disrupting reality, the pursuit of consciousness, responsible entrepreneurship, and radical parenting matter. We now amass over 1 million downloads monthly in more than 90 countries. Our numbers keep growing because there are far more people willing to live divergently than mass media wants to acknowledge. For you, the change makers, the light bearers, the way showers, we say thank you. If you're ready to take the next step in your evolution, go now to superpowerexperts.com and take the superpower quiz. And as Neva Lee Rekla, our youngest podcaster, likes to remind us, remember, we all have superpowers and we can change the world. So we were talking a little bit before the recording and I would, you were sort of going into the history, right. Of, of this great disconnection that Mm -hmm. is really the source of a lot of, a lot of what we are seeing expressed in the world today. A lot of the pain and suffering that we're seeing expressed in the world today. Um, And, and for, for the listeners who had a chance to tune into the conversation that I did with Gogo Kanyekure Waze Mancini on breaking the spell, I have a feeling that this conversation with Mark is going to be a really um, beautiful thread continuation of that conversation. Um, because one of the things that, that she and I were, were discussing was, was this, this wound that um, a lot of us especially I think those of us with European ancestry uh, are carrying and have perpetuated forth around the globe. Um, You know, trauma has this way of, of perpetuating itself in an effort to heal and complete itself. Uh, So I would just love to hear you talk because you're so eloquent um, in the way that you bring things forward about how you see this, this history, um, you know, mm. you, talk, you talk about hierarchy and, and mm. how, what's your understanding of sort of what we're witnessing unfolding today and how that relates to this topic of God and sex? Yeah, well, I'd like to start off by saying that the, um, the anthropologists will tell us that all human life uh, arose in Africa. Apparently, it was the geography in which all uh, human origins were. And then this great drift, uh, the migratory drift of populations and, in fact, all creatures. It's part of Mother Nature. You know, uh, Some went north into the cold climates of Europe and lost the pigmentation and um, became fair-skinned. And for some reason, uh, in the sort of primitive survival uh, behaviors of the human species, uh, you know, aggression to each other and so forth, and the, um, the need for survival, probably in very harsh conditions, you know, uh, developed... Um, Metal technologies and steel and so forth, and then weaponry. And in the that sort of primitive drive for survival, then uh, travelled into the rest of the world and became uh, dominant 
of indigenous cultures all around this world and dominant and very aggressive, cruel, brutal, uh, terrible ways. And we know this history. It's all there. You know, whatever race we are, we carry the, the burden and the pain of uh, the trauma that our ancestors suffered and that we presently suffer. And this moment in human history, I feel, you know, it's, it is terrible. It's a very dark time. There's so much pain in the, both the uh, pandemic of a viral illness, but also the pandemic of racism and social inequity and wealth inequity that is causing us uh, such misery in the entire planet and continues to. Uh, in this dark addressing of our situation, there is hope. There, I think this is the hope for humanity and the, the potential to uh, resolve what we call in yoga the karmas, the dreadful karmas, the chain of reaction, you know. And here is an opportunity for us to uh, break the link in the chain of uh, cruel domination of one group over another. And it's you know clearly seen the um, the injustice of it, and so on and so forth, and the, the systems that humanity have been living by, you know, in its commerce and its 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 way of uh, controlling the publics, uh, is simply not working. And our you know we've been on about it for a long time now. Global warming and the uh, pollution of the planet. You know, we all know what our issues are here, and I think this moment in time is allowing us to now get down to business. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now do what we must do to survive. So, yeah. so you were talking um, before we started to record about about life, right? And and yes. the the intimacy with life. Yes. And how this history of domination and control that that did sort of um, end up falling under the umbrella of the church, which is I think why this really interesting conversation about God and sex. Um, yes. Can you speak a little bit more about that and your your understanding around? Yes, well, around what is what became very obvious to me in my life that the invention of celibacy as a religious methodology, you know, as the the attempt to know the idea of God, uh, is the very reason that hierarchy could exist. So celibacy, the, the denial of sex, the denial of the feminine, uh, the denial of polarity, uh, male and female as obvious equals and opposites where one empowers the other, 
that brings new life into existence. It is the nurturing force of life. It is life itself. It is all life, the union of opposites. Uh, that was taken from the people. And these religious publics, which was sort of the whole of Europe and really the whole of Asia, and it's in its uh, similar but different forms and language and leadership, uh, the, the people would turn to the leader for affection, leader, the leader for intimacy that they were not getting in, their, in the common ordinary life. And this enabled leadership. And there was this collusion of religion and, and uh, secular you know, uh, the kings and the church and, and all of that. Uh, this, this empowered the, the leadership, the head of hierarchies and the system of hierarchies to control the people and the people be obedient to that control. I mean, look, you know, whole, <laughs> a king could rally whole armies and go in, into another territory and slaughter their neighbours and so forth, you know, because of that loyalty people needing affection in life. So there is a, a very clear link of, to, you know, the idea of celibacy and, and sexlessness and womenless men um, telling the public how to behave uh, it has gone on for many, many, many centuries. <laughs> and um, from, you know, the philosophies that I was acquainted with in my life in uh, from you know profound teachers in mainly in india uh, informed me that uh, this was not the way to know god <laughs> this this system simply doesn't work so it's and when you hmm. sorry to interrupt you for a moment i just i it, to me what you're saying especially coming from sort of a yogic background is actually quite radical because, um, and, and, and you're, you're correct in that, you know, this, this method, um, was not just in the church, you know, this, this was happening mm. pre-church, um, yeah. as you mentioned in, in the Asian countries and in India. And, um, and I think we have this romanticization with Eastern culture here yeah. in the West, and yeah. the, and this idea of, you know, there are there are many great teachers. I'm thinking primarily right now. The first one that's coming to mind is Yogananda because he, there, I, yeah. you know, where I live, there's like his ashram and everything, and and there's a lot of community here around his teachings, yeah. and and he does talk about about celibacy and about sort of like preserving the. Um, the flat, I don't know the words that he uses. Um, so I'm not, yeah, yeah. Try, but, but you know, this, this concept, yeah, this mm. concept that, that celibacy is better than engaging yeah. sexually yeah. and that, and that engaging sexually was kind of, um, for the common people, but not for the real serious students of, yeah. of God. Totally. You got it. You nailed it. I mean, the glamorization of celibacy as if you're really, if you're a hero and you want to know God, you'll do that. <laughs> you know, you'll drop away from uh, relationships of every kind 
uh, you will go within and find this sort of inward uh, center of yourself or the, you know, the witness consciousness or whatever the language is that describes it. But this, uh, the glamorization of that idea has, is the dissociation of from life and from each other and from uh, Mother Earth, frankly, and all her ecologies. This is why we can rape the planet, you know. Right, and, because um, we're, because if we ascend to a higher consciousness, then the planet is really not necessary. Yeah. Yeah. But this is this is kind of one of my big soapboxes. <laughs> it's like if we yeah. came here, if we came here to ascend or to transcend the body, then yeah. we wouldn't have come into bodies. Like we we came into bodies to to be in the experience of physical reality, not to achieve yeah. physical yeah. reality. Totally. And my my teacher Krishnamacharya, who is the teacher of all the teachers of yoga. Um, the sort of our grandfather, the source of all this uh, yoga in the modern world. Uh, he was very emphatic about this. He said there was never such an idea of celibacy in yogic culture. In the, in the pre-doctrinal yogas that flourished on this world for thousands of years and then uh, got codified in a great body of work between the 5th and the 13th century called the Tantras. And this is yoga and the concept of uh, dissociating from the object and from each other and from uh, male-female polarity was simply not there. It was not in culture at all. Uh, that got removed out of India from the 13th century onwards, out of India and Tibet. And... Uh, Actual yoga got confined to very rare sort of hermitage type situations like in Tibet and sort of disappeared from the public um, knowledge base. And yet it did flourish throughout Asia and Tibet in between the 5th and the 13th century. It was the way of life of um, ordinary people and it was the means of uh, religious realization. He, Krishnamacharya would say it is the very means by which we actualize the great ideals of faith, of uh, sacred text of all kinds. You know, so he would say, you know, a Christian needs yoga, a Buddhist needs yoga to actualize the beautiful ideas. But the beautiful ideas that were sourced in yogic realization from a pre-doctrinal time, uh, these yogas have not been available to the public. They're not there. And so the sublimity of the yogic realization got turned into yogic doctrine, uh, sorry, into religious doctrine and held by uh, special people. You know, the idea of the perfect person, uh, the enlightened person, as if everybody else is not enlightened. Right. My teachers, the, the model of the perfect person implies that everybody else is not perfect. <laughs> it is the denial of life itself. And then we struggle away in that dynamic that my teacher called the social dynamic of disempowerment. So what we must give to all people is this participation in life as it is in reality as it is, in the way that 
God is functioning, you might say, <laughs> the way that, the, that Mother Earth is functioning in the union of opposites, in the intelligence of that union, in the, in the natural harmony that is that union. I mean, Mother Nature is functioning with a natural harmony. It's, it is our already given situation. But it's been taken off the people by um, this um, idealization of a sort of a sublime future idea that you'll get to through some sort of arbitrary method of struggling in the body and mind. And most of it is a struggle of uh, trying to meditate, trying to uh, stay as awareness, you know, reside as awareness and, you know, mindfulness and all of that. Uh, it's that it has many different forms, but you know my teacher was saying you go back to the you know pre uh, religious times where everybody had was given their birthright to be intimate with their own life and to be intimate with each other and to be intimate sexually. And I just want to quickly put in there that whether it's same sex intimacy or opposite-sex intimacy, uh, whether it's uh, whatever the gender identification might be or, uh, or may not be, you know, it's still the same matter that life is the union of opposites. Yeah, so you know, when you're talking about male-female polarity, I think, um, you know, you're really talking about, like, yin and yang. You're talking about yeah. positive-negative. We're looking at magnetics, yeah. right? It's not... Yeah, and and the uh, yeah, so so thank yeah, we're, you for, we're looking, for that caveat. We're looking we're looking at an atom <laughs> that has a positive and a negative pole right. that that's there for its very existence, you know. Right. Or we're and, looking at the sun and moon, and yeah. And so, so in the way that you're understanding all of this, it's like to 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 uplift celibacy is kind of like taking away one of those one of those charges. Yeah. Right? To see it's a, it's a fault of culture because what happened was the domination of Europe and Asia and the whole planet, especially, you know, in, in Europe, it started happening from about the 8th century onwards and in Asia from the 13th century onwards where the public got ordered with um, male power structure and it created the behaviors of the whole society, whether we're, we're men or women, we behave in these um, formulated patterns that was created by uh, political and religious power structure. And we are, you know, standing up <laughs> and seeing this and not just, you know, seeing it from some sort of benign point of view and, and making the changes we need to make, um, Perhaps we could have done that, but we didn't do it. And now we have a major crisis on our hands where we have to change. Mm -hmm. We have to see through this hoax that has been put on uh, the, the, the human life through hierarchy. Well, and I think a lot of people could say, well, what does sex have to do with this? You know, it's like how, because I think that, at least what I have seen and part of why I, why I was inspired to start this show is that there, 
they're in that in that holdover from this, you know, I guess this this culture of of hierarchy of, and really I, I've never framed it this way for myself. So it, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it, it, it's really fascinating, but it makes sense. This yeah. uplifting of celibacy. There's been you know, I always sort of viewed it from the lens of this like Puritan culture, this wave that came over, but you're absolutely right. It was informed from, from that um, arrangement, if you will. And, mm. and what's the, the backlash to that has been this sexual perversion, right? Yeah. Because yeah. when, when anything is, is repressed or suppressed, it has to come out. It's not like we just can eradicate it. It comes out in these really, yeah kind of gross ways and we've seen that too in yoga in yoga culture right especially when it's brought over to the west there's all these sexual yeah. scandals that break out um yeah. you know this this abuse of power on on the part of mostly male teachers of you know, you know female yeah. students like that this is this is not a yeah. new thing and we see it in, yeah. the, in the church you know the mm-hmm. priests and you know molesting the children and, and all of this this and and then we have this really sort of confused relationship to sexuality but i guess for someone who's listening to this like how do you draw the relationship to what's happening right now in the Mm. world to Mm. our sexuality yeah i i I would just like to mention quickly that the example of yogananda that you brought forth and and that let's say the example of the pope (laughs) to take two Uh yeah very influential uh, people on the planet, um, they are simply in the momentum of uh, religious uh, ideology that certainly has beauty and sublimity and you know beautiful liturgy in it and and all of that, but it is based on you know an unseen uh, pattern that has its roots way back uh, as I said in Asia in the 13th century and in Catholicism in the 8th century where there was this uh, denial of the feminine and um, the, the opting out of all ordinary conditions for the idea of something that is greater, like God is greater than, um, than the seen reality, than Mother Earth and the human body mm-hmm. and the uh, sexual polarity. It is obviously how life is functioning. And so... They're in that momentum, and it's not to point a finger at Yogananda, like, oh, he was wrong. <laughs> right. No, he's brought forward the, a lot of beautiful things. Yeah. I love the, going to visit yeah, the, the ashram and the gardens here. It's, it's exquisite and, yeah. it, and beautiful. Yeah, as does the Pope, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it brings forth beautiful things. But the, it is simply in the centuries-old patterning of a presumption that there's a superior place to get to if you give up sex. If you, you, if you go beyond that desire, you know, the desire for God. My teacher used to say the worst desire is the desire for God. The desire for desirelessness <laughs> you know, is uh, creating the misery of humanity because it's not honest. Mm. And the, the uh, analogy that I make around sex is that if you ask a person to hold their breath for five minutes, see what happens. You know, the, the body will burst out in a, you know, in a gasp desperately. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. If you take sex from the human 
life, it comes out grossly, badly. Yeah. You know, the whole burden of pornography that we have on us is that, you know, it's a, a dreadful, you know, the, the other side of the same sleazy coin of celibacy, you know. And, you know, in our lives, we, people usually sort of oscillate between, you know, trying celibacy and that doesn't work and then they try uh, sex and it's so sleazy and negative and vulgar. <laughs> They go back to celibacy, and there's no wisdom in our. There is no sexual wisdom in our society. And so, how is that impacting the culture at large, in your understanding? Well, as I as I said, there's a, a intimacy is frustrated, and it comes out in aggression. It comes out in addiction. It comes out in you know trying to soothe the body mind in every kind of way including um, religious obsession including yoga obsession you know <laughs> this sort of popularization of yoga in the west in the recent decades of these sort of angry young men coming out of their misogynist life in india and teaching gymnastics and calling it yoga and people like thrashing themselves around in yoga studios all over the world in these um these glamorized gymnastics that they're calling yoga and it wears the body down and creates, you know, injury in the joints and, and uh, anxiety disorder, you know, and body dysmorphic dysfunction where you don't, you don't like your body if it doesn't look like the cover of yoga journal, right? you know, and all of that, it's the same. I'm sorry to say it, it's the same uh, momentum of hierarchy that takes away a person's actual yoga and actual life and actual sexuality, and that is intimacy with life. And I'd, I'd like to say that everybody is inherently at one with life. Everybody is already at one with life. And yoga is pre-doctrinal yoga, pre-hierarchical yoga, <laughs> <laughs> without the model of the perfect person, but simply the model that everybody is life itself and the perfection and the wonder of life. Yoga is the simple participation in life as it is, in reality as it is, including male-female qualities uh, that is life itself. And it's simply each person's embrace of what they are and their embrace of the intrinsic connection that they already have to life as it is. I always like to say, if, if you're looking at the beauty of nature, uh, you are nature looking at nature. <laughs> mm -hmm. you, are, you are the beauty that looks at the beauty. You know, you are, it, my ultimate statement uh, is, you are, everybody is, right now, the power of the cosmos. It is arising as a pure intelligence how your body is functioning. Already it is. Uh, it is arising as unspeakable beauty because I'm sure everybody can notice or has noticed that everything in the natural world is profound beauty. And, uh, you know, guess what? Everybody is the natural world. You <laughs> You belong, you were born. 
on Mother Earth, you are the natural world. And so yeah, you and are, we've forgotten that. I think yeah. that, you know, like you, you say that, like, it's like, like, of course. Yeah. And yet there's this huge, I remember actually, so I took a permaculture design course many, many years ago. And, um, and permaculture, you know, a lot of people they think about permaculture, they think about, okay, you know, building sustainable food gardens so that, you know, we can, we can be self-sufficient, right? And, but I remember mm. my teacher at the beginning of the class, he had everyone, he said, okay, what's the problem that permaculture is trying to solve? And, mm. you know, everyone's shouting out climate change, you know, food deserts, all these things, right? And, and he, he said, no, no, we haven't gotten it yet. What's the, what's the problem that permaculture is trying to solve? And I'll never forget this moment. He wrote, the problem that permaculture is trying to solve is the idea that we are separate from nature. Yes. Yes. And I say just intellectually to look at that is very helpful to people. They may not be able to feel it because of the way the, you know, the, the dreadful patterning of the society that we've been born into and the, our behaviors, you know, in that society. But if just, pause for a moment and just logically, you know, mathematically, scientifically look at the fact. It is a fact that everybody is nature. Everybody is already in the natural state. Everybody is the power of the cosmos that brought us here in the first place, each, each person, and that presently sustains us, beats our heart and moves our breath and we we have profound harmonies with the rest of mother nature like the the the, the garden <laughs> the permaculture garden or simply the green realm the plant kingdom that we depend upon for our our nutrition and the profound relationship we have with air for example you know the body knows yeah we're gone uh without uh, light, we're gone. You know? Yeah. Yes. So, you know, we are, we are light. <laughs> you know, thank you, sun. And this is simply the fact of our situation. Now I go back, and yoga is the embrace of the fact that we are in power, pure intelligence. We, we are this extraordinary uh, mystery phenomena of uh, life on earth. <laughs> we are that. And there is what I call for from my teachers, uh, Krishnamacharya and his good son, Desikachar, who were scholars of their own traditions and a scholar of yoga, and that they could identify what is actually yoga and how does each person according to who they are, their body type and their age and their health and their cultural background, how do they do a yoga that is right for them, that is actual and natural and daily and non-obsessive as, as participation in life as it is and reality as it is, including, of course, sex. And this, is, this has not been available to the public, uh, you know, since the 13th century <laughs> in India. What's been available is beautiful religious notions and power structure of the presumed enlightened person. 
my teacher would say, you know, the Buddha never made that presumption that he was different from anybody else. The Buddha didn't go around saying, hey, I'm, I'm enlightened, follow me. <laughs> it never happened. It, it came after, you know, the glamorizing a person as being some sort of exclusive agency of truth came much, much later, you know, in some cases hundreds of years later, like Christ or Buddha, hundreds of years after their lifetime, those power structures created iconography of them as, a, as, a, as an exclusive way to get to God uh, and denied the public their actual birthright to be intimate with life as it is, or with God, goddess, as he, she is. <laughs> yeah, I, wanna, I want to um, go back to something you said, because you said, you know, we're all light and, and we're also all darkness too. And, and I think it's the, you know, when we talk about the denial of the feminine, there's also this denial of, of darkness or this, this making darkness negative. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. it's a bad thing and needs to yeah. be eradicated, needs to be fought. Yeah. Um, that there, that there can be evil. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is part of this big lie that's been perpetuated to keep us separate. Yeah. Yeah. And humanity is having a good look at that now, like never before in modern history. Perhaps like, here's the hope for humanity, perhaps never before in the entire human history of human, you know, of the old get up since recorded history. We have never looked at the darkness. We've never been willing to look at it. We try to soothe ourselves with religion and yoga and drugs and media and, you know, entertainment of every kind. And we will not look at the darkness of the dreadful patterning. We try to, you know, like hide it. The U.S. has been trying to hide it yeah. from the public forever. And it's yeah, never and we're really being come out. forced to look at it now. Yeah. And, it, I, you know, I think it's a sort of a natural spiritual process. It's a, it is a healing of karmas. And you can't heal an illness unless you know you're ill. Right. Yeah, and if you can't look at it, yeah. you can't heal it. Yeah, that's actually something um, Gogo Mancini was saying too. Mm. Um, and also my teacher Jyoti, who, who, uh, who I had on, you know, saying like one of the mm. blessings of this time that we're in mm. is that at least now we know like the sickness is, is in our face. And I can I can hear I can I can just hear some some um, people of color saying like oh yeah now the white people know like we've known what this sickness is for a long time like totally it's in our face for a long time of course they have yeah yeah and but we've been um, blinded to it by the excitement of commerce and well the, and, know, and the, we've been able to look away yeah that's that's part of the the privilege right is that yeah. we. We yeah. get to look away and we don't have it in our face. But even that, even that, you know, looking at skin tone and this idea that lightness is, is better than darkness, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
it, I mean, well, it, it plays out in, in, in the arena of skin tone too. It has its origins in uh, European colonialism right. uh, for, for 400 years uh, that ran out in, in 1840 in New Zealand, actually, because the uh, British soldiers couldn't defeat the Maori warriors. They tried to for 30 years and they gave up and colonial policy ran out in the UK and they couldn't do it anymore. Their soldiers were being defeated in Africa and New Zealand and so they were forced to sign a, a, a treaty. It's called the Treaty of Waitangi. And in that country and other countries like South Africa or Germany, for example, they've had to like closely look at the fault of their social arrangements and the dreadful brutality uh, forced on their, their indigenous populations. And, I mean, it's, not, it's nowhere near a model of um, social order at all because there's been dreadful abuse in all those countries. But they have been forced to look at it and take at least uh, sincere uh, steps for many good-hearted people to to uh, reconcile and uh, make reparation for this colonial brutality that went on for for hundreds of years, and there is at least that attempt. And I think the hope of humanity is that this the whole world will now make that attempt to um, sincerely uh, correct the. <clears throat> the fault of this uh, dreadful colonial uh, patterning and the presumption of white superiority and all of that that created our you know modern democracies of Australia, New Zealand, the US, and Europe, and all of that. You know. Yes, but it's not. I think that's that's what I'm hearing so clearly from this conversation is that it's not just white superiority. It's it's prioritizing the light. It's 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 making enlightenment better yeah. mm. than than everyday existence. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Instead of instead of acknowledging that the two cannot be whole without the other. Of course. Right. You know. Yeah. I mean, like, we. It's clear. <laughs> that everything on Mother Earth belongs here. No, yeah. it's as right. simple as that. Right. So, how do we make Every, space for all of it? I guess is the it, question. Yeah. Everything that Mother Earth has brought forth is uh, completely legitimate <laughs> and needs to be nurtured, cared for, protected in the way that Mother Nature in, intends. And, you know, humanity has created a dreadful darkness for itself in not doing that for many centuries. And, you know, our, our sciences and technologies and so forth may have made a lot of improvements, but we're still in this uh, dreadful, you know, pandemic of uh, climate chaos and racism and, you know, wealth inequity, uh, you know, injustice of every kind and if we're in the denial of our own embodiment we're in 
you know, intimacy has taken been taken from each person and humanity is frustrated in that and look to soothe it by, you know, making money or or media or alcohol or or pornography or, or religion. <laughs> my the determination that Krishnamacharya had to basically get these dharmas into the public mind and bring them to the world. To, you know, the, he and his teachers believed this yoga to be the the greatest human treasure of that culture had come up with so far, and that it was due to be put into the whole world by like all lands, all cultures. It wasn't it wasn't Hinduism. Um, it, it was a separate philosophical system that was certainly helpful to Hinduism and Buddhism in the between the fifth and the thirteenth century, but then uh, you know eliminated. And he was just determined to go and get it. Out <laughs> of he spent seven years in Tibet in a you know very isolated, rare place where these the uh, yoga practices were still happening in uh, the in the authentic, authenticity of uh, wisdom culture that was still there. And he got it, and then he brought it down to uh, Mysore and started teaching it at the behest of his teachers and to bring it into the world. And this, this great uh, wise king of Mysore, his name was uh, Krishna Raj Wadia IV, <laughs> he he realized that he needed yoga personally and that his family needed it and that his people needed it. And he became the patron of Krishnamacharya and, uh, and the student of Krishnamacharya. And I just think it was a very, you know, I love this beautiful model of a, of a wise leader seeing what was needed and going, oh, okay, <laughs> I, I support that. And from that time, um, there has been, a, you know, a small, uh, thread of uh, this, this yoga wisdom and the wisdom of sexuality is you know real intimacy with real life as it is real people real life <laughs> real intimacy a real yoga and he was determined to to bring that in and even his own you know 10th century uh, gurus or this very famous uh, Ramanuja Acharya the Vedanta Acharya, there were only three main ones. Ramanuja was the second one. And he said sort of a pronouncement. And these people are like Buddhas or Christs, you know, they're avatars, they're wisdom holders. And and uh, his pronouncement was that there must be yoga to realize the non-dual state of Vedanta. And that is the obviousness that everything is one. We are all one in the one. We are all reality. You know, we are all life. And he's saying, because of this tricky mind that's denying the oneness, there must be a, a yoga practice for each person. And that included, of course, the family life, what they called the family life, the, the male-female polarity, whatever the gender or sexual preference might be or might not be. <laughs> the, the intimacy with life and with each other in family life was uh, 
according to Ramanuja, a necessity to realize God, to realize that there is only God, the non-dual state that's been, you know, a beautiful teaching of Vedanta. Certainly um, people, wonderful people like Yogananda brought that uh, to the U.S. As, and and uh, Ved, um, um, the Vedanta Society, you know, Ramakrishna and, and that uh, great movement uh, that came with Vivekananda, and they brought that into the Western mind for the first time many decades ago. But Krishnamacharya is saying that there must be a yoga for all ordinary people to deal with the patterns of denial that have been put into us by uh, social hierarchy, um, the enslavement of the public by sort of patterned um, hierarchies, frankly, whether they, they're corporations, like corporations are religion. They're, they're telling the public how to behave with great power and great economies, you know, <laughs> creating patternings on society. So he was, would say, you know, there must be yoga given to the people to correct this, uh, this fault of culture that has created the human misery and the denial of the planet and the relational ecologies of Mother Earth that is, you know, that is threatening all of us now. So this is why I work for this, and that's why I wanted to put this book together, uh, God and Sex. Now we get both. And it's, um, it's a very sincere title for, you know, sometimes people are a little shocked, <laughs> or like, what? <laughs> you know? Or even, you know, like um, just a shocking statement <laughs> to put these two words together. It's so funny because when I saw the title, I was like, of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Many people do. Like, duh. Yeah. <laughs> some, some of my friends have said it's the most important book of our, of our time, and I'm very you know, grateful to hear these words because it's exactly how I feel it. You see, by separating God and sex as two different phenomena, as two different ideas, as two different sort of cultural points of view, uh, it has vulgarized both and made both useless. You separate mm. God from sex, it makes sex useless, and that's exactly what's happened to sex. Well, and I if, love uh, also this sort mm. of expanded definition of sex, of, of the intimacy with, with life as it is. Yes, yes. You know, because I, I really I, I think that if we define sex that way, I mean, and yes. then yes, there's there's physical sexual intercourse, but 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 to allow it to be, it enriches it enriches everything. It enriches our spiritual practice. It enriches our sexual practice. It enriches you know dinner time with your family. Yeah. Um, it enriches yeah. a walk in the park and everything to to allow ourselves to have intimacy. Yeah, and like I say, we are intrinsically already at one with life. We're already intimate with life. It is our natural state. And that these, uh, these yogas of participation in the natural state uh, developed in, in wisdom culture over thousands of years, <clears throat> the societies of Vedanta and the societies of well, before that of Veda, 
were cultures of <clears throat> that recognition that that everything is arising in the one reality. You know, that your deity, your guru, your your God, your your spouse, your body, and the whole elemental uh, world <clears throat> that the body depends upon is in one reality, arising as one reality. There's no hierarchy in any of it. Yeah. Just one thing happening. <laughs> and that is the fact of every human being's situation. Well, Mark, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be with us today. We, we are coming, we have actually gone a little bit over our time slot, but um, yeah, I just want to say thank you. And, and thank, thank you for you. what you're bringing forward. And it's been such a pleasure to converse with you in this way today. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to talk with you. Like I said in the beginning, <clears throat> excuse my voice, packing up a little bit. Hmm. When I read your words that, uh, you know, intimacy with your own life, with your own body, allows for intimacy of every kind with the rest of life and with everybody else. So it's a really important, urgent matter that we have a little time of moving and breathing in the way that's right for us and resting to be, be connected. And it is the way that that you could say the anciently given way for each person to be rested and intimate with their own life and then get up and work (laughs) to correct the the wrongs of the world. Yes. We need both. Yeah. We need both. And everybody deserves that little time of moving and breathing. And I say it is, you know, it is that yoga is actually uh, direct intimacy with the nurturing force that is life itself. And that's what it is. Now, when people practice that um, they may not feel like suddenly they go into some sublime samadhi state or something but it makes a difference even if you don't know (laughs) how it works it makes a profound difference and when we get that into a daily little routine uh, it's very helpful for every kind of person no matter what your culture is no matter who you are and what you do in life so for those listeners go and and um, check out this book and and check out mark's work heart of yoga and um and yes and if you have not yet gone and and looked at our superpowerexperts.com website there's a whole ways to play section in there you can go and look at all the ways to play with us as well um and I'm just so grateful to all of our listeners um, that you continue to show up for these conversations and, and really take this information and apply it into your life. That's, that's what this is here for. If, if you just show up and listen, that's only half the work. The, you know, the, the, the real work is, is taking the information that comes through here and going out and, and living it. So in that vein, until next time, Go out and love yourselves so that you can love the world more deeply. Many, many blessings.
Thank you so much, Tatiana. Great to speak with you. Are you ready to discover your superpowers? Go now to superpowerexperts.com and take the superpower quiz today.